again, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn over to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Again, it is good to see everyone again this week. Thank you for praying for us. The passage that uh, Mark read from Galatians chapter 1, Steve Lawson did a sermon on that on uh, Friday afternoon, uh, excellent sermon. Again, highly recommend y'all to check these out. There, yeah, I think you can go to shepherdsfellowship.org, um, is that right? Shepherdsfellowship.org, and uh, you can get these. Um, you, you might have to register your name. But you can get some of these. I'm pretty sure that they'll be. They will open up all of them. And if not, you get with me, and I can download them, and uh, we'll get a, get you a copy of them because they're really, really, really good. All right, we are into the last of the seven churches, and then next week we begin to look at heaven. And boy, we are going to uh, have some fun. Uh, depending, making sure that I get through uh, Laodicea today. We might have a little bit of that next week too, but either way, we are going to, uh, I, I guarantee you as we get into this book, you are going to get a glimpse of the Lord as we uh, delve into it and see the glory of our Savior. Um, but today, we deal with the last of the seven churches. What's made? In some of the foreign countries, they actually stand. Uh, Bibles, uh, not always, but hopefully, right? Pulpits, uh, not always, but hopefully. Uh, music, those things kind of make a church. Well, I would suggest to you today that we're going to see a church that had the one thing that was missing that's crucial for a church to be a real genuine church, a biblical God-honoring church. You know what that one thing is? We'll get the Word of God who reveals who? Christ. That's right. That's right. Christ. Today we're going to see a Christ. It's a church that, oh, if there was one way, I would not want to be described. Well, I am afraid, ladies and gentlemen, that there might be many of these today, even in our country. I hope this never becomes our church. That would be my biggest prayer, right? Christ must be exalted in this place. But let's look at this church as we examine the last of the seven churches. We'll start in 314. 314. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He overcomes. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have revealed about your son, the Lord Jesus, in this passage. Oh, Father, help us to learn from this message. And oh, Father, help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Oh, Father, help us not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And oh, God, help Christ to be preeminent in all of our thoughts. Help him to be the one we exalt in all of our thoughts as we study your word and as we live for him. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. This is the Christless church. One, a warning that all of us should heed. To give you a little background on the church in Laodicea, it was in a town or a city named Laodicea, which was a part of a three-city metropolitan area that included Hierapolis and Colossae. It was in the Lycus Valley. It was approximately 10 miles away from Colossae and a few miles, six miles down the road from Hierapolis. Colossae was the one where the letter to the Colossians was written, and Laodicea is mentioned also in that book in in Colossians chapter 4 as having a letter sent to them that was then passed on to Colossians, to the Colossians, and then the Colossian letter was passed back to the Laodiceans. So this was a church that had been around for a while. Remember, we estimated the book written, Revelation, around 95 uh, obviously, this was 30-something years after the fact when the letters were written to Colossians and to the Laodiceans by the Apostle Paul. This church, as we will see, had a major problem with their view of Christ. Christ had become a secondary thought at best in their church. This church was in a city that was very, very wealthy. Uh, It was known for its wool. It was also known for its medicine to treat eyes. Uh, Interesting as he alludes to an eye salve here, a medication that was produced by them. It was known for its commerce, its manufacturing. There was a trade route that ran from east and west and north and south that went through this area. It was a very, very wealthy area. It's interesting, though, it it reminded me a little bit of uh, L.A. in that it depended on others for its water supply. It couldn't get its water from itself. There was no springs or anything. So where it got its water from, uh, unfortunately, were two locations. One was Hierapolis, where there were hot springs. And another was from uh, Colossae, where, where cold springs came. And you can see where this is going, right? You mix the two and what happens? You've got lukewarm water. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but it was a city dependent on others, but was very, very wealthy. As we'll see, it is a great contrast from the church in Philadelphia. The contrast would be where in Philadelphia we saw before, and look back there, in verse 8, of chapter 3, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. And remember we talked about how they were probably the lower <laughs> echelon of the city. They were the poor, most likely, of Philadelphia that were in fact rich with what? A right understanding of God and a love for him. But here in Laodicea, we have the opposite. We have people that are rich materially but were poor spiritually. They were lacking a lot. So Christ begins to address this church, the last of the seven churches, and I would suggest 
that it's a toss-up between this and Sardis, which one was the worst. I would probably say that Laodicea gets the hardest rebuke. And by far, I would suggest that this would be the church we want to most avoid out of all of them. But I think it's important for us to look and examine what he says so we can avoid that same problem. Again today, as you see in your notes, we're going to see how Jesus addresses a church that is missing the one thing that is really important for a church. And that is Christ himself. Christ himself. The first aspect of Christ's address, it's a stinging rebuke, is his self-description. As you go along in your notes, we're just going to walk through this. He gives four aspects in his address to the church. He first gives his self-description. We've seen this throughout all the churches, right? All the way along, he gives a glimpse of himself before he starts his address to the church. He kind of says, okay, this is who's talking to you. And we find this in verse 14. Let's read. Notice. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of, cre- of the creation of God, says this. He gives a description of himself to get their attention. Who is Christ? Remember, it's his church. Let's look at his three descriptions of himself. Here we see the amen. Now, At first reading, we say the amen. When when do you hear the word amen? Usually at the end of what? Prayer. Prayer. Right. So Jesus is the end of a prayer. That word at the end. What does that mean? He's that thing that we say at the end. Amen. He's the amen? He's the end of a prayer? What does he mean? This word amen, it means to affirm something. That it's sure or that it's valid. For example, when we finish our prayer, we say amen. We say what? I agree. I affirm this prayer. I affirm what this is all about. And Christ is the par excellence, the highest of high, with the article before it, the amen. He is the affirmation. He is the reliable one. He is the fixed one. He is the sure one or valid one or the reliable one that is unchangeable. In Hebrew, it it literally means this concept comes with the idea of sure or valid. So Christ is the authentic one. It's literally what this means. He is who he is and he's authentic. He's sure. And this is important. It's kind of developed in the second phrase that he gives, the faithful and true witness. This title is meant to further explain who Christ is. He is not only the sure and authentic one, he is also the one who testifies or witnesses or reveals the glory of God. So he is the authentic revelation of God. He is faithful and true. We know this from John 1.18, right? Jesus has explained God. And from this, we know that his revelation of God is sure, true, valid, and he's faithful and true. Not only is his character authentic, his message is authentic. Again, what has been forgotten in this church, most likely? Christ. We often look at that last phrase or one of the last phrases there where it says he's at the door knocking, right? You might have heard a message before it says that Jesus is at your door knocking your heart, at the door of your heart knocking. Well, I would suggest he's talking, using that as the church as a whole. He's at the door of the church. He's knocking. Hey, (laughs) I'm not in that church. That's what he's getting at. I'm not here. But what's he saying? Stop. I am the amen. I'm the authentic one. I'm sure. I am the reliable, faithful witness, the revelation of who God is. What is a church about if Christ is not there? Nothing. A social gathering, right? A church is a church if Christ is there and he is exalted. 
And I find it interesting, his last phrase, look at his last description. He says, the beginning of the creation of God. Why does he say this? This points to the, and highlights the obvious deity of Christ, that he is the creator or the originator of creation. This description of Christ is very similar to Paul's description to Colossians, to the Colossians in 1.16. 1, 13 through 20, where it talks about Christ as the one who is a part of the creation. Not that he was created, but he is the creator. And it goes back to this concept. It appears that both cities, both Colossae and Laodicea, had struggled throughout the time with an idea of a high view of Christ, that Christ was God and he was the creator. Now, it's interesting to me that a church that doesn't have Christ, where does he start with? That his witness is true, that he's authentic, and that he's the creator. It's an interesting place to begin with the church. A church should know this, right? A church, a church should get this. This is uh, unfortunately not <laughs> understood in a lot of churches, but Christ is the creator. God is the creator. It's interesting. Uh, John MacArthur did a, uh, one of his messages was on um, every self-respecting uh, evangelical or believer or Calvinist, I think he even used that phrase, is a six-day creationist. That means he emphasized what? That if you believe in God, what? If you're a genuine believer, you believe that God created the earth in six days. This is just common, folks. This should be just the normal thing, right? Christ is the creator. But for a church that didn't have Christ in them, where did he need to go back to? The very beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. God created the world. That's an interesting thought. Even in our own evangelism, just a side note here, maybe a good place for us to start, huh? But what about those evolutionists? You're going to lay down your presuppositions that Christ created everything? That's where you start. God created it all. And mankind fell, right? And in a sense here, Jesus says, go back to the beginning. I created the world. Christ's description of himself goes back to that. So what do we see about his description? He's the authentic, reliable one. That he's a faithful and true revealer of God, as we know. And that he is the one who is the source or the creator of all God's creation. Again, as we understand this, who will we end up worshiping? Christ. If our church understands that, we will worship Christ. And worship is seen in what? Obedience. The greatest display of worship of Christ as the creator and Lord is through our obedience to him. This is what they needed to understand. Second, notice, the second aspect, Christ's evaluation of the church. Again, folks, oh, Lord, this would be my prayer. Please never let our church be described this way. And on a side note, I wouldn't want my life to be described this way either. I hope that none of you, and if you are being convicted... Go to Christ today. If this describes your life, oh, that it wouldn't as we go along. Let's look. Notice in verse 15. He gives a twofold evaluation of the church. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the first of the twofold evaluation. It is the lukewarm church. I know your deeds is a phrase that he's used several times throughout all of the letters. This phrase is the way to highlight what they are about. And it's interesting to me that often he never gives, in all of the letters, he never really gives details. 
well, I know that you are really good at your uh, homeless ministry or a such and such ministry. He doesn't talk about, well, you feed the poor real well. He doesn't normally talk about that. He talks about the attitude or the motivation behind their deeds. What are they like? Who are you? What's your person about? Not necessarily what the deeds look like, but who, you're, who you are. And this is what happens with them here, too. Notice. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. In other words, instead of saying, hey, I know your deeds, that you don't do anything for me. You don't, you know, you don't, ha- you don't come to church. You don't read your Bibles. He doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, you are and describes the state or the condition of the church. He says that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, this concept for many years has been taught the idea of uh, pointing out the spiritually cold and the spiritually hot. And probably everybody in here has heard this. But there's a struggle with me on this. And as I've studied this, I, I have a hard time with it. Because why would Jesus want a person to be cold spiritually? Why would it be better for him to want them to be cold spiritually or want them to be hot spiritually, but don't be on the fence? Well, I would suggest that anybody on the fence and anybody cold, he doesn't want you to be there, spiritually speaking. Lukewarm's bad, but so is cold. (laughs) They're both bad. Matter of fact, anybody that's cold for Christ spiritually speaking, would be somebody that would be what? Dead in their sins. Would be considered what? The enemy of Christ. Now, granted, he does hate hypocrisy, and he makes that very clear. But I don't think that's the emphasis here. And as I study this more, I think, and it fits better with the context. Colossae was known for their cold springs. Hierapolis was known for their hot springs. Colossae, the cold springs, that was refreshing, good drinking water. The hot springs was a hot, full of carbon, uh, carbon uh, deposits and stuff that was used for medication purposes. That people would sit in these uh, uh, hot tubs type things where these springs were and they could get healed and it would be good for renewing their bodies. So both of these were good things, good Whereas when they mixed, they became what? Lukewarm, which was what? Useless. Matter of fact, if you drank a little bit of that carbon-filled or water that was lukewarm, what would it make you do? Vomit, literally. It'd make you throw up. And so this, Laodicea would understand this perfectly. They're reading along, and he says, look, you are useless, You don't have the cold springs concept or the hot springs concept. You don't have any good in you. You're useless. And so you make me want to vomit. Look at it in verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I'm on the verge of throwing up. (laughs) Now think about this. I don't know about y'all. Um... That's not something I really like to meditate on much, but I'll take you down the road for a second. Any of those ladies that have had uh, that morning sickness, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. That moment right before, you know, where you really feel like, ugh, I hate that feeling, don't you? Well, this church literally brings Christ to that place. How many of you want to be described that way? You are completely useless. You have rejected me completely, and you make me want to puke. I don't know about you, but if out of all the seven churches, this would be the one church that I don't want to be like. Right? How do we avoid this? How do we avoid it? I would suggest Christ has to be preeminent in our ministry. It must be about Christ. We'll see that as we go along. I'm about to vomit you up. Do you realize Christ says you make me sick? 
Folks, this is not a case of immaturity. This is not a case of not having a book of the Bible in your possession, possibly. You know, they had the letter to the Colossians was passed on. Some argue that the letter to the Laodiceans was the letter of, uh, of Ephesians passed on to them. Needless to say, all of them are real close. They had these books of the Bible. The problem was is that they had not heeded the message of those books. They had the word, but they had not embraced genuinely the one who is revealed in the word, who is Christ. This is, not, this is also not a case of not hearing the gospel. They had heard it. Most likely, the guy mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 had witnessed to them and talked to them. Rather, this is a case of those who heard the message and had professed a commitment to Christ, but in fact did not really know him. They were useless, and they were still dead in their sins and had not come to truly embrace the glory of the gospel. Let's look at the second aspect of his evaluation of them. The church was useless. Then Jesus goes further and says they're self-deceived. They're self-deceived. They're a self-deceived, lost church. Look at this, verse 17. It gets worse and worse and worse. Oh, I don't want to be like this. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow. Because it starts with that verse in verse 17. Because this signals a reason for the upcoming command in the future coming up. Because you're like this, I advise you to buy from me. That's verse 18. But the because is laying out why he advises them to buy from him. And he says, because you say. Now that's a key little phrase. You say. Ah, so important. These people are one step further down from Sardis. Remember Sardis? Sardis had a name. The idea was is that they had a name that they were alive, but they are dead. They were, in fact, dead. The idea was is that people had called them. <laughs> they had the name of Christian. But here, this is one step further down. You say you got it. In other words, they are self-promoting. <laughs> I've got it figured out. You say... I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. They had the name Sardis, but here these people were self-proclaimed rich people, valuable. This is a boast of self-appraisal from the church. Um, I'm I'm real reluctant for people that come up and brag about all that they have and do. Those are the people that we all should go, right? But just remember, you can't be that person either. Oh, so often we have this tendency of pointing those things out in other people. But don't be like that, thinking you've got it all figured out. I'm that, well, I did this, and I did that, and I have this. Okay. The self-proclaimed part in and of itself is a big warning flag, right? The person that brags on themselves, what? Is most likely dead. Be careful, ladies and gentlemen. This is boastful self-appraisal from the church. The self-description lays in direct contradiction to their real state, as Jesus will say, because you say this, And you do not know that you are really this. What you say about yourself does not matter, ladies and gentlemen. Listen closely. What you say about yourself does not matter. What Christ says about us does matter. Right? What does he say about you? Boy, that's challenging, isn't it? Think about that. The pride of their wealth goes further with the next little phrase. The normal order 
is review is reversed for some reason. Instead of I have become wealthy, so I am rich, it says I am rich and I have become wealthy. Why does he do that? You notice that? Look at that. You say I am rich and have become wealthy. It's normally, and it would normally be worded, I have become wealthy, so therefore I am rich. Why is it reversed? He's making a point. The point is, is that they say that they are self-made millionaires. I did it. I have made myself rich. I'm rich, and I've made myself this way. What is that? Pride, pride screaming. It's screaming everywhere. The church is filled with pride. A church, and listen to me closely, a church that is void of Christ is full of pride. It's fact. If we're about self, we miss the need for who? Christ. And that's where these people are. This is Jesus' way of emphasizing how pridefully they describe themselves. In effect, he is saying, or they are saying, he's getting at, I have made myself rich on my own. And he develops it further with that last phrase, and have need of nothing. I don't know about you, but we should probably all describe ourselves as what? Need of everything. I'm in need of you. Anybody that says, I don't need anything, is what? On the verge of not needing who? Christ. And this is what they're at. This is where this church is. I've got it figured out. I've got, I'm going to take care of everything. I don't need anything. I, the scariest thing, it appears that the city had become the church. <laughs> the church was wealthy, as opposed to, like we said with the Philadelphia, this church's wealth had caused them to be also spiritually dead. They had need of nothing. Their self-sufficiency was all they had. You know, how many of you have thought, man, wouldn't it be great? Have you ever looked at those signs? I've been tempted by it before. Those signs on the side of the road that say, today's lotto, $136 million or whatever it is. Play Powerball today and be it. You could win $80 million. You see those signs and you say, oh, wouldn't that be neat to have all that money? Wow, I can do so much for God. Do so, you know, I could do this and that and this. Oh, wow. I could build a seminary. I could do all these things. Yeah, but then who would I be depending on? Myself. Oh, it's my money. I, I, I suggest to you folks, I know that several of us have had financial difficulties. I have never seen a church lose so many cars in one week. <laughs> we've <laughs> there's got to be f- five cars on the brink of <laughs> destruction right now ladies and gentlemen that's a good place to be why dependence that's what a great church is all about a church that honors God is dependent upon Christ this church had it all had it all Financial difficulties? Yes! I need them. Why? Because otherwise I might become like them. Self-sufficient. I got it all. I'm fine. I don't need anything. Oh, folks. You want to avoid being like this church? It might cost you a little bit. And that's okay, isn't it? Because isn't Christ better than any riches that we can have in this world anyway? He's better than any car I have. He's better than anything that I have. And if he isn't in a church, number one, in priority and greatness in all things, that's the church we don't want to be like, right? This church here. 
They didn't get it. They didn't need anything. And he says to them, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I guarantee you when they read this letter, they weren't, what? I got clothes on. I'm not poor. I got lots of money. Hopefully it was convicting at this moment. And they started to realize what? He's talking about your heart. He's not talking about your wallet. He's talking about your condition of the soul, not the condition of your purse or your pocketbook, right? It says you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. This language is emphatic. It is literally, it is you that is wretched. This is a direct, stern rebuke. I once again find it interesting that Jesus, the authentic one, saves his hardest rebuke for these professing believers. The list of conditions that follow are, are Christ's self-description of the church. Notice, while Paul does at one point call himself wretched in, in Romans 7, the difference here is that the church does not think that they're wretched, but Christ is calling them wretched. Paul says in Romans 7, 24, uh, wretched, oh, wretched man that I am, right? And that's probably a good way to view ourselves. But I guarantee you that the church in Laodicea did not view themselves this way. And that was their problem. So Christ reminds them, who are you? <laughs> this is who you really are. You're wretched and miserable. A state of extreme misery and unhappiness. They said, no, I'm happy. I got all the money I need. No, you're spiritually dead, and your heart is far from God, so you are wretched. They are in a spiritual state of bankruptcy in the light of the holy God who is talking to them. Miserable, that is pitiful. They're pitiful. It's pictures of people, a, a person who it should be pitied because they are in danger of eternal hell. They are running headlong towards a collision with the holy and just God. You're in a horrible state. You're wretched and you're miserable. You should be pitied. Oh, I don't want to be this church, do you? Well, they may, they, they may think they have everything. In fact, they have nothing. Have need of nothing? No, you have need of everything. Everything you think, the opposite is true. And he says, you're poor. <laughs> it carries the idea of a destitute beggar who is completely broke. They're completely broke spiritually. While they claim to be rich, they were spiritually beggars in reality. Do you see the irony in this? I mean, he is being so, he's using thick irony. Those who said they were rich were, in fact, the opposite. Sport, poor spiritually. Jesus says, everything that you think concerning yourself and you say about yourself, the opposite is true. In fact, you're poor, naked, wretched, miserable, blind. You're known for being able to heal the blind, but in fact, what? You're spiritually blind. Everything you think, the opposite is true. Oh, folks, get this. This is so important. This is what this church needs. Why? You don't value Christ until you know you need Christ. That's what he's doing. He's saying, look, you need me. You need me. Ladies and gentlemen, do you? See your own neediness. <laughs> Do you see that you are in desperate need of a Savior? Not just initially to get you saved. You need him every minute of the day, all the time. I am a needy, needy man. Is that you? That's the beginning, folks. It's the beginning of enjoying the love of Christ. 
It's knowing your desperate condition. That's what he's doing. He says the bl they're blind. The city was known, again, as being able to help the blind. But in fact, they were spiritually blind. They were naked, again, in a city that was one of the wealthiest, that probably wore the best clothes. They were considered naked. Obviously, nakedness was a shameful thing in this city. As a matter of fact, at one point around 60 AD, this church was, or this city, um, experienced an earthquake. And at the point of the earthquake, Rome sent money to the area to help out. Well, this church was, or this city was so wealthy that they refused the money. This was a church and a city that would consider themselves the richest, the best of the best. And it had infiltrated the church. This is why we get this concept of the rich man. It's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Why? Because the rich man says what? I have everything. I don't need anything. But the poor, desperate person says what? I'm nothing. I have need of everything. Help me. So I guess this would be a prayer to stop asking for more money. <laughs> this would be a call to say, stop trying to be rich, trying, uh, wanting all those things. Because those things might lead you to this place. You don't want to be there. I was, I was concerned about this just thinking about it with my children too. Because it infiltrates your children. What happens is, is look, you, you might get it. You might see, oh, this is all from God, and it's not my money. But how easy would it be for your children to just say, oh, well, this money, this is just normal. This is, you know, I don't need anything. I got everything. Folks, do we realize that? Oh, we live in a society. Our country is just absolutely spoiled rotten, don't we? Aren't we? Even at the height of our, our desperate economy, it's horrible. How horrible is it? 8% don't have a job right now. But those 8%, many of them are get, you know, they're getting plenty of funds. The average person, oh, I just heard this week that if you buy a new house this week or this year and you're under $50,000, you could make up to $13,000 just to live in America. Oh, we're so poor, we're desperate. Oh, folks, we're not desperate. I think those people in Togo that Dana went and visited, they're desperate. This church here has a major problem. I hope we don't end up this place. Our real spiritual value is not found in how much money we have or what we drive, or what we live in. Our spiritual value is found in our humble submission to Christ our Lord. This church saw their wealth and associated it with materialism and their spiritual life. And I think, unfortunately, they described a large amount. This describes a large amount of churches in even our own country. Finally, we see Christ's exhortation. We'll get next week to the other, the promises, the exhortation. The useless church must humble themselves under the hand of Christ and repent. Jesus, in effect, says this. Church needs, and what he needs, what they need, is to humbly seek Christ in repentant faith. Look at the irony it keeps building. Verse 18. I advise you, sarcasm, I advise you to buy from me gold refined from fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You need to come by from me is what Christ says. You rich ones, you need to come by from me. But he's telling them to buy something from them that they can't afford, that they can't buy. It's a wild thought. These rich people, they got all loads of money. They come up, and Jesus says, you need to buy from me gold refined from fire. Well, I can buy gold, no problem. That's not what he's getting at. 
again, he is speaking with direct spiritual emphasis on the heart. He's not, he doesn't care about the, how much money they have. He's using this as a, uh, a slap in the face <laughs> to say it mildly. Get your attention. What is this gold that he's telling them to buy? And he's saying it highly sarcastic. Most likely a gold, the gold is a reference to their faith. Their faith in him. Their trust in him. A reference to faith. Gold refined by fire. This is metaphorical language. He is not saying literally purchase refined or pure gold for me. Rather, this is a picture of personal, genuine faith brought about by God's grace. A full awareness of him that they would trust in him. It is this faith in Christ that results in spiritual wealth, right? We know that from Ephesians. We also know that faith ultimately comes from God, right? It has to come from him. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Most likely the goal is a metaphorical look at their faith, their commitment to Christ, their trust in him. So he says, buy genuine faith. And they can't buy this, right? I need you. It should have done what? Humbled them. That's what he was doing this for. Bring them to the end of themselves. You don't have it all. You need me to survive. He says white garments, that you can buy white garments, most likely a a reference to the righteousness that comes with Christ, through faith in Christ. Again, Romans 3.22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. How do we get this right standing with God? Do we get it based on what we can purchase? Now you say, that's absolutely crazy. But do you know that thousands, I would suggest millions of people try to buy a right standing with God even today? Righteousness does not come by what you give. Righteousness comes from God. He says, you need it from me. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. What's this concept here? The nakedness implies what? The shame of their sin. It's pointing to their sinfulness. Oh, you naked ones. You need righteousness, and the righteousness doesn't come from you. You need to buy it from me, right? Ladies and gentlemen, oh, this is so important for us to understand. Our value is not found in ourself. It's found in Christ. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and trust him alone for our righteousness. Christ is my only hope. My wallet does nothing. When God looks down and sees where we are and what we have materially, that will mean absolutely nothing in eternity. Nothing. It's where your heart is with respect to Christ is all that matters. ISAB, spiritual understanding, illusion could be, to a right sight or understanding of God. You see, but do you really see? You need something to clear up your vision. Who, clear, who really fixes the spiritual sight of man, by the way? Christ. God, buy from me the ability to understand who Christ is. It's important to note for this faith to happen, the church needs to know that they were spiritually poor. For this righteousness to be imputed to them, they needed to know that they needed his righteousness. For their biblical vision to be cleared up, they needed to know that they were what? Blind. And this is what he's doing. So he calls them zealously. He says, repent, repent. Look at it. Verse 19, those whom I love, I think he, he loves this church, and I see it by his rebuke of them. He's calling them, look, I love you. I'm reproving you. I'm disciplining you. 
I'm calling you to look at who you are and therefore what? Be zealous and repent. Turn and commit to Christ. Trust in him alone. Next week we'll look at the promises he gives to those who do just that. Folks, you understand what makes a church a good church? Christ is exalted. What makes a believer a genuine believer? Christ is exalted. If you exalt yourself, ladies and gentlemen, if it's about you, then Christ is not preeminent. It cannot be about us. It's all about him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your word who reveals Christ. Thank you, Father, for providing spiritual wisdom and understanding. Oh, God, help us to see the blind spots in our own life. Help us to understand how desperately needy we all are. Oh, Christ, you are who we need today, tomorrow, and forever. Reveal your glory to us again and again and again that you may be exalted in all that we do and say. We pray this in Christ's name.